0: And now, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Well, Boulevard Baptist, I am so grateful to be with you this morning in this glorious and joyful season of Easter, particularly as we continue to walk through the Gospel of John And as we contemplate together the question, what are the implications of the resurrection for our lives? Each year we celebrate the resurrection not just for one Sunday, but for an entire season. But what does that miraculous, otherworldly, amazing event mean to us today? Well, this morning, the lectionary gives us the first 10 verses of the 10th chapter of John's Gospel. Now, this passage is particularly enigmatic, or as Dr. Jamie Clark Souls, Johannine scholar and professor who is chair of the Baptist House of Studies at SMU Perkins School of Theology commented on these verses, lovers of the literal, maligners of metaphor, beware. This passage is not for you. Jesus is teaching again in this passage, and he uses more than one image to get through to his audience who just doesn't seem to get it. His audience of disciples includes not only those who were presumably present at this teaching, but also all of us today who continue to learn from his teaching and the example of his life. In preparing to preach this morning, I learned something new about this familiar passage— The 10th chapter of John should be read as a continuation of the chapter before it. In our passage this morning, Jesus is explaining more about the miracle that he had just performed. And so here's a brief recap of the action in the previous chapter. In the ninth chapter of John, Jesus gives sight to the man who was born blind. Jesus sees a man who was born blind tells his disciples that there is work to be done in the world, and then he gets to work. Jesus says in chapter 9, verse 5, according to the New Revised Standard Version, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And then he gets to work, spitting on the ground, making mud with the saliva, and spreading the mud over the man's eyes, and then saying to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam. This is really earthy stuff with dirt and spit, with Jesus touching the man and speaking to the man with these very specific instructions. And the man listened to Jesus. He did as he was told to do. He washed in the pool and he was able to see for the first time in his life. And then the man, given this new life with his gift of sight, starts telling the good news to those around him. And that's when the controversy starts. Now, there are plenty of detractors in that crowd around Jesus, neighbors, two groups of Pharisees, even the man's parents, who are doubtful of this miracle and the person of Jesus who performed it. They complained that Jesus had performed this sign on the Sabbath and therefore claimed that he could not possibly be from God. But the person who never lost faith in Jesus, the one who continued to testify to the miracle he experienced in the face of disbelief and outright hostility, is the man himself. And towards the end of the ninth chapter, Jesus and the man are together again. As they were at the beginning of the passage, only now the man can see Jesus. And Jesus asked him in the NRSV translation, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, And who is he, sir? Tell me, so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and the one speaking with you is he. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. And so with that important background, we come to today's gospel text, where Jesus is interpreting this sign and what it means to his disciples. And so Jesus first gives us this image of himself as a shepherd. It's a familiar image for us and would be familiar to those around him, and those who were familiar with the Hebrew Bible, and particularly this gorgeous poetry of Psalm 23, the the image of the Lord as a shepherd who cares for his sheep with provision and presence in every season of life. And the shepherd, in Jesus' telling, has a special relationship with the sheep, and it's because of his voice. He calls to the sheep by name, And they know the shepherd's voice. Think how remarkable this image is. In English, we don't even have a special singular for the word sheep. The word is the same whether there are one or 100 of them. But this shepherd knows each and every one of those sheep by name. The writer of John's Gospel also doesn't give us a name for the man who was born blind, he's just the man in the passage. He's like the sheep anonymous in his obscurity easily passed by and looked over by most people but not by Jesus Jesus sees him really sees him in his need and then he does something about it he literally gets his hands dirty and he heals him himself and then he speaks to him with these instructions to go wash in the pool and in the passage It is not until the man hears Jesus' voice again that he proclaims Jesus to be Lord and worships him. The man, like the sheep, recognizes his shepherd by his voice and his personal care of him as an individual child of God. Now, by contrast to the shepherd who enters by the gate and calls the sheep by name and whose voice the sheep recognizes are the thieves and the bandits, those that jump over the fence. And in that prior passage of chapter 9, we have plenty of examples of these thieves and bandits, the neighbors, the Pharisees, even the man's parents who don't listen to him, don't believe him and discount the miracle. The Pharisees are so wrapped up in their own religious purism, their doctrines, their iron grip on power, their narrow interpretation of scripture, their comfort with the status quo, that they miss the miracle and the humanity right in front of them. And the man's parents are trying to hold on to their own status, They're afraid of the Pharisees and what they would do if they were as brave as their son was and confessed the miracle. And so when asked point blank, who healed your son? They say, we have no idea. Ask him. But the disciples, after this explanation from Jesus, are still not getting the point. So Jesus tries a different tactic. And this one is a little more direct. Jesus says, starting in verse 7, The difference is so stark, the choice is clear. The thief is there to steal and kill and destroy, and Jesus has come that we may have life and have it abundantly. And isn't that what this entire Easter season is all about? A celebration of life, but not just any life, an abundant life, an eternal life. And with these beautiful words from John's Gospel, we don't have to just guess at what that means. The man born blind shows us one example of what that means. The man was technically alive before he met Jesus, but it was far from an abundant life. It was a life where he was reduced to begging, marginalized by society, presumed to have brought on his own suffering by those who saw his misery. But then, like God used dust to create the first human in the second creation story in Genesis, Jesus uses dust mixed with his own spit to give new life to the man. And with this encounter with Jesus, the man gains not only sight, but also voice a voice to advocate and to testify to others about the love and the care that he has personally experienced. But I think Jesus himself is also modeling the abundant life and how he chose to live his own life. Abundance not measured in quantity, but in quality, in service to others, in prophecy, in sacrificial love. And that's the true mystery of our faith that we believe that God reveals God's self to us through the person of Jesus, not only through his death and resurrection, but also through his life. In his book, The Heart of Christianity, theologian Marcus Borg puts it this way, Jesus is, for us as Christians, the decisive revelation of what a life full of God looks like. Radically centered in God and filled with the Spirit, Jesus is the decisive disclosure and epiphany of what can be seen of God embodied in a human life. Or as the author of John's Gospel writes, these are written down so that you will believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and in the act of believing, have real and eternal life in the way he personally revealed it. But the deeply personal nature of revelation means that we can believe and declare it while knowing that God can reveal God's self to others in a myriad of ways. Borg goes on to say, we can say that Jesus is the decisive revelation of God for us as Christians without needing to say that he is the only and exclusive revelation of God. Or as William Sloan Coffin, author and activist, said, For us as Christians, God is defined by Jesus, but not confined to Jesus. Or put in the imagery that Jesus gives us here, we can hear the voice of the shepherd in our own language and culture, but the care and the love of God are constant. I believe this to be true Particularly through my own relationships with my family and my friends from different faith traditions. The way in which God reveals God's love to me in the person of Jesus is just as, but no more real than the way that God reveals God's self through study of Torah or Quran or in any other tradition. And for us as Christians, this encounter with God and God's love for us and desire for us to have abundant life is not limited to these examples we have in the gospel. God continues to meet us in unexpected and highly personal ways to reveal God's self to us, to remind us of God's desire that we have abundant and eternal life. And sometimes it takes a new experience for us to recognize this revelation, to hear the voice of Jesus calling to us. This Easter, I had such an experience. One of the benefits of living in Washington, D.C. is being able to attend worship services and other events at the Washington National Cathedral. And so this year, I celebrated Easter at the cathedral's Easter vigil service held on Saturday night. The great vigil of Easter is the most significant liturgy of the Christian year, and I knew this was not going to be a typical service when I picked up the order of worship, and it was 22 pages long. About five minutes before the service was set to begin, the celebrants, about two dozen of them, recessed down the side aisle as the lights in the neo-Gothic building dimmed until the space was in total darkness. And as the several hundred worshipers waited in hushed silence, a bonfire was lit at the back of the cathedral, and a six-foot-tall paschal candle was then lit from the bonfire, and this slow procession up the central aisle began, lighting individual candles from the paschal candle as it went until the entire nave was bathed in candlelight— And a cantor sang a cappella, the light of Christ. And the congregants responded, thanks be to God. It was incredibly beautiful. And it was also primitive, wild. That bonfire continued to burn at the back of the cathedral. This burning love of God for all of us, revealed in the light of Christ, shared freely with everyone gathered. Maybe it was the darkness or the incense, but it felt like I was transported out of 21st century Washington, D.C. to some medieval celebration of Easter, uniting me and all my fellow modern believers with Christians around the world and across the centuries. And as the service continued with a litany of baptism and a reaffirmation of baptismal vows for those gathered— I thought, we believe this, and we just don't believe it, but we confess it, and we commit ourselves to a life spent proclaiming the good news of the resurrection through our words and through our deeds. And the world in which we live today desperately needs this good news, the central meaning of our faith, the gospel of God's love for each and every one of us and for our shared life together in God's creation. God's love is wild and unruly. It is challenging. It asks more of us than just rote recitation of prayers and scriptures. It asks us to be transformed by God's love for us in ways that can transform our world for God's justice and peace. But let's be honest. Sometimes the world we live in is just not up for this kind of radical transformation just like the man's testimony about Jesus' miracle was ignored, our testimony can be inconvenient to the convenience nation that we have become accustomed to. Our bold confession that Jesus is Lord calls into question the earthly power structure that tells us that money and political power are all that's needed for life. So it is that this wild, Unruly, unusual, and extraordinary confession that we make gets repackaged into a domesticated version of Christianity. And in God we trust faith that asks little more than us than to affirm God bless America. And I don't think that this bumper sticker faith is best described as Christianity, but rather this distorted version of faith that it is an ideology called Christian nationalism. This afternoon, I'm honored to speak for the Anderson Forum for Progressive Theology. The program begins at 3 p.m. at First Baptist Church of Greenville, and all are invited to attend in person or view on livestream. And we'll talk much more there about Christian nationalism, how it overlaps with white supremacy and racial subjugation, how it prevents religious freedom for all, how it threatens democracy with its authoritarian tendencies. And I hope that you'll join us for that important conversation. But for now, we can say that Christian nationalism is palatable and controllable by the state in a way that an authentic Christianity never could be. The central belief of our faith begins with the state execution of Jesus, a person who worked at the margins of society for the oppressed and the forgotten and was killed for the dangers he posed to the status quo. How could our faithful witness to Jesus the Christ ever be in line with political powers that be? at least as long as we live in a society with such rampant inequality and injustice. As part of my work, understanding and advocating against Christian nationalism, I hosted a 10-part podcast series for the BJC podcast on the dangers of Christian nationalism. And for it, I talked with a number of experts, including Old Testament scholar and theologian Walter Brueggemann, I asked him about the dangers of Christian nationalism to an authentic Christian witness. And he answered, when our claims for gospel truth are attached to a political and economic power, they are ineffably distorted and designed to maintain the privilege of the status quo. Being aligned with power, he said, has a very seductive way of being talked out of the critical edge of the gospel. These ambassadors of Christian nationalism are like the thieves and the bandits that Jesus warned us about, jumping over the fence. They offer a pale imitation of the abundant life that Jesus came to give us. And we know that they are not of Jesus because they do not live their lives the way that Jesus did, which was always in service to others, and particularly those that society had forgotten and dismissed as useless. In our podcast conversation, Dr. Brueggemann gave this inspiring call to all of us who are committed to justice. He said, what the crucifixion resurrection narrative bears witness to is that the presumption of any nation or any empire has its limits and finally cannot defeat God's intention for an alternative way in the world. The confession of Easter is pivotal for political practice in the world because it says that God's will for life and for well-being finally is the truth of the world. And when we sign on for that, we sign on for all kinds of possibility that the nation or the empire does not want to entertain. We testify to this abundant life every time that we say that Jesus is Lord— And we testify because of the resurrection. We who have experienced the risen Lord have been given the opportunity for new life, for abundant life. And when we are faced with the choice of listening to the voice of Jesus or being led astray by thieves and bandits who offer domesticated and nationalistic form of our faith, may we instead joyfully choose to make this extraordinary confession And in so doing, may we choose to accept God's gift of abundant life for us all. Amen.